I don't know, don't know if you've been following the debate, but like, you know, there's all these different attempts to try to understand the Russian way of war. So if you go to DC think tank sessions, you have these kind of, I mean, slightly comedic kind of events where some people call it full spectrum warfare. Others people call it hybrid warfare. Well, hybrid is just a nice way of saying Russian. Um, other people call it new spectrum warfare, ambiguous warfare, gray zone warfare. And then and like, like think tank experts have like massive fights about this. Like, right. I won't talk to you if you call it hybrid. It's not hybrid. It's obviously full spectrum. Um, can't you see that it's ambiguous? You are listening to the Slavic Connection. Today we have with us Peter Pomerantsev. He is a Ukrainian-born British journalist, and he's the author of the award-winning 2014 book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. Mr. Pomerantsev has been an outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin. He's appeared before U.S. Congress Foreign Affairs and U.K. Parliament Defense Committee. And he has a new book coming out this August, which we touch on a bit, and I hope you enjoy it. Peter Parmarantas, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How was Texas true to you so far? I've only just got here. Yeah. But I love the birds. There's this incredible <laughs> birds everywhere. I mean, so far, it's all about the sound. And this right. is a podcast, so that's the right thing. Incredible noises of birds who all seem to be talking to each other. Yeah. Just absolutely remarkable. That's excellent. Yeah. It's excellent. And it's at 6 a.m. right outside your apartment window. Yeah. Well, you can shoot them here, can't you? Because you yeah, shoot yeah. anything. Okay. It's like a civic <laughs> license. Okay. Uh, so why don't you tell us where you're going to be talking about today? Oh, that's a, that's, that's, that's a really, really good question. <laughs> I am going to be um, diving into sort of this idea of information war, which has become kind of um, a very popular thing to talk about mm-hmm. and mention. I even asked some friends at MIT at one point who were on the media lab there to like tell me, is, have we seen a spike in t- articles about information war? And they did a very quick, unscientific search for me in like 2017. Whoosh! You know, sure. huge amount. And... Um, you know, I've been looking at this issue for a while, and um, it's actually a very complicated one, especially when you try to understand the Russian point of view, because we're usually talking about, you know, it's the Russia who's provoked this conversation about right. information war. And so it's, it's, a, it's a funny one. So, so, I mean, there is like a bit of Russian military thinking that is well into information war, and right. they call it information psychological war as opposed to cyber attacks. So they mean, you know, the sort of stuff that I guess we saw in the US election, but also corruption, any kind of offline activity. That does exist. And they are vaguely obsessed about that. Um, and and there's another bit of their kind of military theory, which says the war of the future is all about blurring the lines between peace and war. And right. information is a really good way to do that. And I don't know, don't know if you've been following the debate, but like, you know, there's all these different attempts to try to understand the Russian way of war. So if you go to DC think tank sessions, you have these kind of I mean, slightly comedic kind of events where some people call it full spectrum warfare. Others people mm-hmm. call it hybrid warfare. Well, hybrid is just a nice way of saying Russian. <laughs> um, other people call it new spectrum warfare, ambiguous warfare, gray zone warfare. And then and like, like think tank experts have like mm. massive fights about this. Right. Like, I won't talk to you if you call it hybrid. It's not hybrid. It's obviously full spectrum. Um, can't you see that it's ambiguous? Um, and which might be kind of the point because the Russians are kind of trying to play between the lines. Right. Um, so look, all that is there. So there is, a do- you know, Definitely like, you know, something very serious to consider there for, for national security and military types and so on and so forth. But the more I kind of explored the way um, information warfare is talked about in Russia, the more I realized it was actually much, much bigger than just, um, you know, a new foreign policy doctrine or a new military doctrine. It's, it's, it's almost sort of a quasi-ideology, um, which does much more... Uh, 
than, than think about sort of, you know, tactical aims. It kind of explains the whole of history. And in some ways, replace kind of Cold War, with the, which was a battle of values and mm-hmm. ideas and systems, and information war, which is a way of looking at the world where essentially all conflicts and all competition is not about values or ideas or ideologies, but just about ways of, can I swear? Messing with Please. the other side. Just yeah. You know, you know. Um, well, so, I swear, and she hates okay. it. So I say okay, yes. Okay. <laughs> it's always it's, it's, it reduces information not as a place where you have debates about narratives and ideas, but but just a way of, of fucking with the other side. Right. Um, and and but that's quite quite fundamental. So that there's you know there's this you know this kind of thinking started among former Secret Service guys who became kind of academics, mm-hmm. and they started explaining the fall of the Soviet Union not as a fall of you know its economic problems or its ideological ideological problems or societal issues but it was actually an information war operation mm-hmm. by the evil west called operation perestroika they right. put their fifth column inside uh, gorbachev's elite and there's you know two or, or the three dollars plan whatever they want to call there, it the yeah. dollars plan is a bit earlier but yes right. um but but it's 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 but that's a major thing and then and then and they start talking about this around, around 2008, 2009. And, and these kind of people are very fringe. They're very marginal. But this is much more, this is just a way of looking at the whole of history. That's what they're saying. They're saying the whole of history is just info ops. Um, and then that gradually gets mainstreamed as the Kremlin starts having problems of its own. And you just explain away all these protests inside of Russia. And then the Maidan, obviously, in Ukraine. They, start, they kind of say, no, no, this has got nothing to do with societal problems or Putin's government or anything. This is an information operation. Um, and this information operation language moves from kind of the fringes to become the center of everything. And now it's definitely part of Russian security doctrine and information is now key to it. True. But also the language is used all the time as a way of explaining everything. And the people who run their kind of their, their, their media, sort of the head of RT and the head of, of of Brasia Sivodnia, which are different organizations which both do propaganda, mm-hmm. they openly say, yeah, we're information warriors. We're in a time of information war. Um, and you know this is this is like a framing. This is a way to look at the world, which is very advantageous to to Russia, because it basically says there are no values in the world, there are no things to struggle for. It's a very cynical worldview, which is one that Kremlin plays into very with a lot of enjoyment. Uh, it reduces something like the Maidan not to a battle for a better life, but just to an info op. And the more we reveal their information operations, the more we start using this language, the more we start framing these problems in the same way. And I think that that can be very, very dangerous because actually that's a worldview. First, it's a worldview that kind of spreads like a meme and, and, and starts reflecting uh, the Kremlin's worldview. Secondly, it's tactically, I think, very, very dangerous because it can lead to Increased polarization because suddenly your opponent is not having a debate with you. You know everything is info op. Right. You know is it a Kremlin info op or another info op? But you stop debating with each other. You just start seeing sort of start analyzing the world around you as a series of campaigns, and that breaks down kind of the ground for for, for democracy. Um, and also kind of maybe geopolitically, and here maybe I'm being paranoid, but the only response to a world of information war is an information peace, which I think leads to the idea of information sovereignty, which is exactly the idea that the Russian and Chinese want to push. So if I was the Russians, what I would do is I'd start all these operations and then sue for peace and say, (laughs) well, the only way for us to stop all this is to have global censorship again. So even the kind of the geopolitical framing of this actually leads to a place where where the Kremlin or China is very, very happy. Right. So that's kind of what I'm going to dive into today. And so so, so sort of my title for my talk today is The Most Dangerous Idea About Information 
war is the very idea of information war. And then I'll go, you know, how can we deal with this? Because you can't ignore what the Russians do, right. which is that's what kind of Jared Kushner is doing. He's saying, oh, it's just a few Facebook ads. <laughs> no, I mean, I do think the American... Do you think the American reaction has been a little bit hysterical? Okay. And not not hysterical, it's been a bit narcissistic mm -hmm. because like, oh my God, it's a digital Pearl Harbor. <laughs> These kind of, A, that's an insult to people who suffered at Pearl Harbor. Right. Oh, it's a digital 9-11. I'm like, I mean, that stuff is, those are bad metaphors. Yes. But also um, narcissistic in the sense that these operations have been having at scale in Eastern European countries, and the American reaction was always, oh, calm down, mm. calm down. It's just information. Or right. like, oh, calm down, calm down. It's just information. I can't <laughs> hurt you with that. So Estonia was basically disabled in 2008 with a mixture of a cyber right. attack, info ops, and kind of instigated riots. I mean, they shut the country down for a day. I mean, your, your listeners should go and listen. Read up about that, or I can tell you more. But I mean, you know, in Ukraine, they've taken out the, you know, the, uh, you know, they, 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 it was a preparation for an invasion, and mm -hmm. so, so these things have been having happening quite intensely in frontline states for a while. So, so some of the American reaction has been a little bit over emotional, but I still don't agree with Jared Kushner. That it's just a couple of Facebook ads. Right. Um, so we do need to face up to this issue, but the way we do it. And the language we choose to do it in and the kind of the philosophical approach we choose to do it in is going to be key. And, and I think America is in a problematic place because really the way to start thinking about this is, is how do we create, create kind of borders between legitimate influence and illegitimate manipulation, what that means in, in the digital age and what will be the regulation around that. Right. But America really struggles with having anything beyond like free speech fundamentalism. And mm. well, if the Russians do it, if America, you know, if... If you're going to be that open about all types of speech, then what's wrong with what the Russians are doing? Right. And uh, yeah, I was going to ask the same thing about what America should even do. And there's a New York Times article recently about how um, lower officials were told not to come to Trump with any news of continued Russian interaction. So there's actually like an effort from the executive to just pretend this is still not happening. Mm -hmm. But it's also the other side of we're kind of giving Putin a lot of credit by, you know, praising this, the GRU, the IRA, talking about how advanced and specialized they are. And I think there are some sort of dissonant Russian, you know, nationalists who are like, this guy can barely run the country, mm. but he can interfere in all these elections and he's all powerful and omniscient. Like, so what should the U.S. response actually be? I mean, A, there's absolutely no... The Russians have always been, including Soviet times, quite good at foreign foreign information operations. Sure. That's one thing they're good at. Yeah. They've always been pretty crap at running their own country. So I don't see any kind of relation between those two <laughs> things at all. Yeah. If anything, the worse you run your country, the more you do of this. You mm -hmm. know. So so I don't think that that's a stupid argument. Mm -hmm. um, but but without a doubt, I mean, part of the point of this whole operation was to get caught. Yeah. To make you know to you know can't really fight America in any other way. But this way, suddenly we're back in the debate. Putin has status. I mean, it's worth going back to the 1990s, late 1990s, when the spin doctors around Yeltsin and then around Putin kind of are dealing with a situation where the country's very, very weak. The Kremlin's very, very weak. And they kind of work out that the only way they can restore the idea of centralized power is through information. So by putting the Kremlin everywhere, by putting Putin everywhere, they create a you know, simulacra of power. And they talk about this very openly. And now they're going to do it internationally. Okay, we're going to impersonate um, being a great power by doing these info ops and then leaving our fingerprints everywhere. Uh, that's like, I'm quoting a, a Russian spin doctor. So that's, that's certainly, that's certainly part of it. Um, but listen, it's, it's part of a much, much bigger issue. And in a way, what's been great about the Russian thing is really highlighted, you know, the deficiencies that we have around 
you know, what what is democracy in a digital age? I mean, in Europe, the response will be regulatory because mm-hmm. um, we're more comfortable with that. In America, it might be more social or cultural. I don't know what it's going to be. But even before we get to the regulation bit, can we at least agree as a society what we think is a normal influence campaign or what yeah. is an abnormal influence campaign? I really don't like the word meddling. That means nothing. I mean, meddling is then everything, you know, mm-hmm. Radio Free Europe, Voice of America. But you can say meddling is... No, we've based the world, you know, we want a world with free information flows across borders. We can, though, define that some types of behavior online, especially, are not legitimate, like right. creating, you know, covert coordinated campaigns, which don't look like covert coordinated campaigns. Mm-hmm. So, so we have to start kind of drawing lines uh, about what we think is normal and not normal. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. And how do you reckon? So we're not there because we're too busy having partisan <laughs> no. fights. That's where we should be at. We're about five steps away from that. We're like two elections. I think away we're from at that. the shame stage. I think we're shaming people for <laughs> falling to this stuff, but not actually doing anything about preventing America's it. America's in a weird state, but so is Britain. So I have nothing to say. And how do you see this combined with uh, Russian military action? The flyovers in Estonia or in the Bering Strait? W- why? Why are they just testing us? Are they trying to find out what our defense maneuvers are, or is it meddling? Your favorite word. So so so. A lot of things going on, and definitely there's a military way to think about this, and militaries have their own logic. They could well be testing, can you, you know, is NATO secure? Is it a secure alliance? There's a lot of things that militaries will do through their own very strict military logic. I can kind of only talk about this from the political and media side. Mm. And, and the end goal, the way I see it, is, inf- is an information effect. It's not a military effect. So it's to get Russia back in the headlines. Um, or to put us in a dilemma situation, because if we do respond, we put Russia back in the headlines. They're happy. If we don't respond, we're weak, and they're happy as well. So they're putting us in a dilemma situation. But very clearly, when Putin re- returned to the presidency, which he never left. He was prime minister for four years, but you know, he kind of like really returned to the president. He clearly came in with the idea that he was now going to be a foreign policy president, mm-hmm. which hadn't been the truth before. So that was a clear thing. And then you just start pushing everywhere. And the idea is to, to return, the idea is, is informational and optical to, to return again to the top table. There's only limited things that Russia can do in terms of its, its economy and stuff like that, but um, uh, it can do that. Look, that's my interpretation. Mm-hmm. You can talk to Mike Kaufman, who's the best military expert in DC, and he will tell you a, a very different military explanation, which is that Russia has actually in Europe, it's incredibly strong having kind of a mid-range army. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's and and what they're trying to show all the time is like, don't escalate. You know, we're gonna do all this stuff. Whatever response that you do to our, you know, all our political stuff, we're pretty confident that you're not gonna respond too hard. Right. Because in the in the escalation game, we're gonna win. Yeah. So in that sense, there could be a very strong a very clear military signal as well, which I struggle to read. That's a, you know, these are, this is always signaling between militaries. Mm-hmm. They're talking to each other in their weird language. And, and I think often journalists don't understand that language and misreport it or play into the games that militaries are playing. Sure. But, but he's, so Mike Coffin is, is a big expert in sort of the DC think tank land. Yeah, his opinion is that what Russia's really focused on is showing that they are prepared and they have escalation dominance for a kind of a medium-sized war. Sure. And that then limits all our responses to everything else. Yeah, if the EU is talking a military game too, I don't think they're going to be too loud uh, compared to Russia's force, especially the UK leaving, which is you know. I'm not a military expert, but <laughs> yeah, I keep no, asking I trust, military questions. I'm sorry, I trust I trust the military guys, and that makes sense. So yeah, has the UK had the same grappling with Russian interference to Brexit, or is that you know sort of link not been as they tried to? We had our own kind of mini thing, but, right. but it didn't really take off. Um, there, there was a call from Mueller style inquiry. Uh, that didn't happen. I was part of the parliamentary committee that kind of asked for that. Mm-hmm. And the government said no. They don't. I mean, British government has been by far and away the clearest 
about that this is a problem. We need to take a stance. They've been a, the leaders in Europe on the subject, and they continue to be, and they've put money into it. Um, so, so, so they definitely say it's a problem. Much more stuff about in Britain, though, the reaction to the Skripal poisoning, where you had this mm. kind of flood of Russian disinfo, which I think was surprisingly effective in its early stages and right. kind of stunned the government and made them realize that, oh, we should be thinking about this. Mm. Um, but Brexit is not something that's going to be legislated right. over. I mean, I think they, they've decided to keep that black box closed. Yeah. Um, I think it would probably, certainly the, the data people that I know who've looked at this a lot, we, there's no evidence that the IRA, who we talked about today, the troll farm, had any boutique British war room. They mm -hmm. did for America, clearly. They had it was a war not plan. robust. Uh, yeah. no, we've seen a little bit of activity here and there, but yeah. nothing, nothing is coordinated. And overall, in Europe, we see much more activity in Germany, in Italy. I mean, in that sort of 2016 17 period, we didn't see very much in Britain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Italy's a thumb complication uh, politically. Yeah. And I mean, I guess Trump was elected, so it's easy to litigate what was actually happening. Brexit has not happened yet, so it's hard to actually well, the vote litigate happened. No, no, there's, there's lots of strange things about the vote, including sort of money and sort of connections between you know the various uh, the various campaigns involved and were they right. using data and money which they shouldn't have been using. So there, there's a lot there actually mm -hmm. to to raise like, the the Russia thing. If it's there, it's probably much more in terms of sort of corruption support to certain individuals, but even that is very speculative. And what do you see? I mean, I understand that Russia's trying to have the information war, trying to win headlines, like trying to get legitimacy. I totally get that. What is the end game? Because at the end of this, everything's being more public. Obviously, this is not useful if no one knows it's happening. Then they just like piss off everyone to, you know, the nth degree. Maybe they won a couple small elections. Maybe they have Trump in charge. He's not going to be in charge forever. Mm -hmm. Is there a 30-year plan or is this kind of like we can't do anything else and we can do this and it's cheap? So, so, so listen. So, so in in Europe, it's all it's all going very it's all going very well for them. Mm -hmm. And again, like the digital side, we always overemphasize that, especially if we study media and comms or journalists. So in Europe, I mean, you know, there are strongly pro-Russian leaders in in a whole bunch of countries who get some informational support, but it's much more through business and corruption. That's mm -hmm. the real levers. We kind of that's harder to write about. Right. We always mm -hmm. focus on the on bots, and bots mm -hmm. are like one little bit of that. Um, so no, they're doing really well in Europe. Um, it's just, the sanctions are just about holding, mm -hmm. but when Merkel leaves, it's unclear whether they'll hold. Right. So, but, but overall, no, they're looking for confrontation. What mm -hmm. they need to do is manage the confrontation to make sure it doesn't go too far. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're in a dilemma situation. They need to, or Putin is, he needs to generate the narratives of conflict. He's looking for a conflict. He's not, he's trying to, there's a wonderful Russian phrase, vraga, to summon up the enemy. He needs to summon up the country. Come on, right. fight me. He's like, you know, Terence, that guy in Taxi Driver. Are you looking at me? He's, like, <laughs> no, he's looking for a fight, but he's got to make sure the fight never gets too far. Hmm. Because let's say we were to do Iran-style sanctions one day, then, then he's in trouble. So he's, they're always doing this kind of weird walk, like provoking and going back, provoking and mm -hmm. going back, and trying to work out how, where they can punch without it hurting right. too much. And so far, they seem quite good at that. Yeah. I mean, they seem to be kind of getting that level. Or, or not. I don't know. We don't know exactly what their calculations are. And I, but, I um, sort of felt that, like, Russia sort of needs the EU to an extent. It's just such a good enemy that they can prop up, saying, and NATO to a certain extent, understand, understand that they are, feel like, you know, their border states are being violated, whatever, whatever. But the EU and NATO being there is this endless enemy that Putin can say, no, no, we would be successful. We would be this great country, but these people exist. Yeah, so, I don't, I don't, I mean, uh, Ilya will be much better at that because he, he's actually looked at Russian conspiracy theories in detail. Uh, in my sense is the EU one comes and goes. Um, I think America, I think conspirators have a, an enemy further away, actually. Right. You can sort of like 
hallucinate things about. But Ilya is the expert on conspiracy theories and how they work. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I wonder to what extent the EU thing really works, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, they, they try to do that sort of culturally. The EU is full of gays and stuff like that. And right. I'm not sure to what extent that works. Yeah. Yeah, that seems a little blunt. Um, and so obviously um, your book came out five years ago. Do you have something else on the horizon? Or uh... Yes, I do have something on the horizon. Excellent. Uh, I have actually an uncorrected proof, which is always horrific to look at because <laughs> you realize how many mistakes there's at this stage, uh, which is kind of the first thing that you get from the publishers when they sure. just try, try to put the book together. Um, and it's coming out in hardback uh, with public affairs in, oh, it says here, August 6th, 2019. And the book is called This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. It's another and, great title. Um, not as good as the first one. But I, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get a lot of, it's not as good as the first one for this one, but I'm, I'm kind of prepared for that. I'm like, yes, I know, but sure. I still have to move on. Um, but so, so the first book was about propaganda in Russia and trying to draw a political psychology of Russia through a colorful cast of archetypal characters I met there. This one, I go around the world um, looking at how propaganda has changed around the world. So Mm -hmm. I go to Latin America, the Philippines, um, Ukraine, a little bit of America, not too much. I feel America's kind of been covered extensively by by your own guys. Um, And I try to look at the patterns, how it's changed. But And then I contrast it with the Cold War. So 20% of the book is a family memoir. So my parents were dissidents in the Soviet Union. They were arrested for freedom of speech, for, for dealing... Uh, literature, but they were giving up copies of Nabokov and Solzhenitsyn. And then my father worked uh, at at uh, sort of American broadcasters broadcasting into Russia in the Cold War, so another form of propaganda in, in the broader sense. So I contrast that and their battles with things like free speech and choice and all these things, which have now been turned on their head in the new world, where freedom of speech is now a tool for authoritarian regimes, where choice and freedom have been completely corrupted as, as ideas. And where we've kind of lost any kind of notion of of democratic values and what we're fighting for, while in the Cold War, which is much worse in so many ways, there was still this clarity of purpose. So, so that's kind of what the book plays on. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I don't know. It's 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 um it's it's an attempt to make these kind of complex media issues that we've been talking about very human and mm-hmm. very emotional and something people can relate to, and not just kind of bot counting, right? which is kind of what I do as a job, but I realized that's not a good book. I mean, it's well, a good book for us. Yeah, I'd probably, read, I'd probably read no, it. No, we'd but. read it, yeah, but like, you know, I want normal people to read it. I want to sell more in 55 or Yeah, I want some, some, some people who just read books because they're fun, not just people who study media and comms. And sure. And, and I know you have a film background. Are we seeing uh, any more TV or film work in the future? Are you focusing more on these sort of political oh, man, sciences? I'd love to. I so miss it. I'm sort of now, I work at a university now, even though I'm not, I'm not strictly an academic, and I've sort of got swept away into mm-hmm. thinking about internet regulation uh, and and you know quantifiable effects of of information operations. It's such it's such a pity. Mm-hmm. But um, a friend of mine's writing a comedy about an organization like RT, and I'm helping him. I'd like to do that. I, I really I suddenly really miss TV after four years right. of really being happy to be away. I suddenly really miss making stuff. Do you think we're going to see a lot of TV and movies about this sort of stuff? Oh, actually, there's, there's loads of production. There's loads of production. I'm sure. Um, the question is, what's the tone? Do you make it right. scary? She came to the troll farm in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and also, look from a visual point of view, how do you film people just sitting around, like you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. writing Twitter messages? <laughs> Well, you could do the Oliver Stone version, which is horrible, over the top, and seeing through the computer and seeing the you know the internet visualized that's, and that's, Edward Snowden movie. That's but, not the worst problem with yeah. Oliver Stone. Yeah, <laughs> that is the least of the problems we have with him. Um, no, so it's actually very hard. Actually, I have sure. talked to a lot of people who are writing scripts and developing, and it's hard. 
because yeah. you are just filming people in an office tweeting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you, how do you get past that? Right. Um, it's actually very hard to do TV about propaganda generally mm-hmm. because what do you show? Um, you know, TV is about action. Um, so yeah, that's, that, there's a lot of challenges for the people who are going to be doing it. Um, I've seen some funny comedy things already. Yeah, I think humor is the way to go for it, at least at the start. So a friend of mine came up with a good idea, but like, if I start giving away people's ideas, I get stoned. No, 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 no. They'll, be, no. they'll be angry with me. <laughs> no, we can get sued. We're too small to get sued. Uh, uh, what I was going to say is... Um, I, I'm not sure size and liability are, are, are related. Yeah. Cut out the stuff about the show that my okay, friend's writing. Gotcha. He'll sue me. He'll no, some... no one's gunning for the Slavic connection, sadly, so... <laughs> I'll retweet it. And I have like a whole like 15,000 bots following me. <laughs> you, know, you, get, you get plenty of Russian bots attacking you. It's like, well, this is excellent. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you got a few talks coming, but uh, we're looking forward to the next book. Thank awesome. you. Yes, it's called This Is Not Propaganda. This is not a plug. No, this is not propaganda. Adventures in the war against reality. <laughs> excellent. Thank, Thank you for the non-plug Bye. plug. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.